All right, let's talk about part three of Heart of Darkness. Uh, we begin with the this Russian character, and Marlowe describes him as a uh, you know this fabulous, bizarre character. His very existence was improbable, inexplicable, and altogether bewildering. He was an insoluble problem. It was inconceivable how he had existed, how he had succeeded in getting it so far, how he had managed to remain, why he did not instantly disappear. I went a little farther, he said, then still a little farther, till I had gone so far that I don't know how I'll ever get back. Never mind, plenty of time, I can manage. You take Kurtz away, quick, quick, I tell you. Now, the character of the, the Russian here is... Uh, a, again, a fantastical character, and it's one of many examples in the book of the way that uh, Conrad blends reality and symbolism. Uh, he seems almost, the, the Russian seems almost like an allegorical representation of something, uh, but he's, he's a, you know, a real person, but there's a kind of a, a deeper significance to him. Uh, he seems improbable, and that his statement, you know, I kept going a little farther until I don't know how I'm going to get back, well, that really resonates with the book as a whole. That's kind of what the whole journey into the heart of darkness is. You kind of slowly get there until you get trapped and don't know how you'll ever get back. But we get some insight into Kurtz, from this conversation that Marlowe has with the Russian. He says on 1994, We talked of everything. I forgot there was such a thing as sleep. The night did not seem to last an hour. Everything, everything. Of love, too. <laughs> he talked to you of love, I said, much amused. It isn't what you think, he cried, almost passionately. It was in general. He made me see things, things. He threw up his arm. He threw his arms up. Uh, so he's talking about the again the effect of Kurtz and uh, and his voice. So much of the uh, the reality of Kurtz is in his voice and the way he talks to people. And so he had these long conversations with the Russian that clearly had a deep impact on him. And notice that when Marlowe hears this, he looks out at the the jungle and the river. And he says, that I assure you that never, never before did this land, this river, this jungle, the very arch of, the of this blazing sky appear to me so hopeless and so dark, so impenetrable to human thought, so pitiless to human weakness. Uh, and then he says, and ever since you have been with him, of course, I said. So this, the way that uh, the Russian has become completely devoted to Kurtz somehow it seems very dark and depressing to Marlowe. It makes his environment seem even uh, more, again, the, the way he describes it, impenetrable to human thought, pitiless to human weakness. This is the, you know, the, the heart of darkness, and you can see the effect of it in the way that this, this Russian has become kind of a, a disciple of Kurtz. Um, but he didn't stay with him all the time. Kurtz, as it says, would uh, uh, wander alone into the depths of the forest. Um, and he, he goes on and talks about all the things that Kurtz did. And then Marlowe comes in and you know puts, puts it in very blunt language. And to speak plainly, he raided the country. So, yeah, he was going out on these expeditions, raiding the country to get ivory. Um, says, uh, he nodded. 
Not alone, surely, he muttered something about the villagers round the lake. Kurt's got the tribe to follow him, did he? I suggested. He fidgeted a little. They adore him. Uh, so here, again, this, this charisma of Kurtz. He has these followers, not just the Russian, but all of the natives who live there. They adore him. They worship him. Um, they followed him, and they're, they're how he was able to get all of this ivory. He becomes a kind of a little uh, a god to them, and they follow him. Uh, the same way that the Russian follows him. They're just kind of enamored of, of Kurtz. And notice at the bottom of 1994, the Russian says, you can't judge Mr. Kurtz as you would an ordinary man. No, 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 no. Now, just to give you an idea, I don't mind telling you, he wanted to shoot me one day too, but I don't judge him. <laughs> the story about how uh, he, this, the Russian was had some ivory and Kurtz wanted it and threatened to shoot him uh, if he didn't give it over. So he handed it over. But he says, well, that's fine. You know, uh, as he says, the, the next page says, this man suffered too much. Uh, he hated all this and somehow he couldn't get away. Uh, so he has a real sympathy for him. And he says that you know, he, he hated all of this and was couldn't get away. But it seems that Kurtz loves all this and doesn't want to get away. Uh, it's not at all clear how accurate we can see that uh, uh, the Russians' judgments are on Kurtz, or indeed anyone's judgments on Kurtz. He seems maddeningly hard to pin down. And as the Russian is talking, the, Marlowe is observing the, the the structures around, and he sees these round knobs that are on the top of the fence posts around the, the, the village. This is the bottom of 1995. These round knobs were not ornamental, but symbolic, and they were, they were expressive and puzzling, striking and disturbing. So he has these things, again, they're, they're symbolic. They have a deeper meaning. They're not just an ornament. They're not just for, to look pretty. They, they mean something. They're both expressive and puzzling. Well, expressive would mean that you knew what they expressed. Puzzling means that you don't. They're striking and disturbing. Uh, food for thought and also for the vultures, if there had been any uh, looking down from the sky. But at all events, for such, uh, for such ants as we were industrious enough to ascend the pole, they would have been even more impressive, those heads on the stakes if their faces had not been turned to the house. So, the these round knobs, and this is again, it's like the, the time when he sees the sticks coming at him and then realizes they're arrows. He sees these round symbolic uh, uh, ornaments, and it turns out, no, they're, they're living human heads. Uh, and that says a lot more about what what Kurtz has been doing out here in the jungle than all of the kind of gushing from the Russian has. Look at uh, page 1996. Uh, Marlow says, the manager said afterwards that Mr. Kurtz's methods had ruined the district. So the company rejects him. They, they, he's, he's not, uh, this is not the way they want to do business. He, he's, he's ruined. He's gone too far. He says, I have no opinions on that point, but I want you to clear you clearly to understand that there was nothing exactly profitable in those heads being there. 
They only show that Mr. Kurtz lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts, that there was something wanting in him, some small matter which, when the pressing need arose, could not be found under his magnificent eloquence. Whether he knew of this deficiency himself, I can't say. I think the knowledge came to him at last, only at the very last. But the wilderness had found out found him out early, and had taken him a terrible on him a terrible vengeance for the fantastic invasion. I think it had whispered to him things about himself which he did not know, things of which he had no conception till he took counsel with this great solitude, and the whisper had proved irresistibly fascinating. It echoed loudly within him, because he was hollow at the core. Now this is you know, talking about the the what how Kurtz has been corrupted. We've heard that he had all of these enlightened ideas about uh, you know bringing culture to the natives, and here he is, you know, literally with human heads on the the, the fence posts around his house. Um, and he says this is there wasn't any profit in this you know if this is about not about colonialism anymore i mean he's not he wasn't making extra money by chopping off people's heads uh it was about his lack of restraint his inability to to curb his restraint and he suggests here that it's the wilderness it's the jungle something about the jungle itself this environment that knew the truth of of him and brought it out but it's not clear the way that, uh, that Conrad writes this. Was that something that the jungle implanted in him or something it released in him? It seems more like it was a, something it released. Uh, as it says, he was hollow at the core. And so this, this darkness echoed in him. Um, now, the, the Russian tries to, uh, to explain this away. He says, well, these are the heads of rebels. And, uh, you know, Marlowe just laughs at this. Uh, uh, rebels. You know, we had enemies, um, criminals, workers, and now rebels. All of these euphemisms they're using for the native people that they kill and exploit. Uh, and Marlowe is, is beginning to see through all of that nonsense. And finally, we get our first view of Kurtz. But he's being carried on a stretcher. It's another irony. Here is this great, powerful figure who is so dominant throughout the novel and is so powerful within the story, but he's also a weak, sick, dying man. And notice a little detail that uh, Marlowe notes, that uh, Kurtz means short in German, don't it? Well, the name was as true as everything else in, in his life and death. He looked at least seven feet long. He covered uh, his covering had fallen off, and his body emerged from it pitiful and appalling as from a winding sheet, a winding sheet you would put about a corpse. I can see the cage of his ribs all astir, the bones of his arm waving. It was as though an animated image of death, carved out of old ivory, had been shaking its hand with menace menaces at the motion, motionless crowd of men made of dark and glittering bronze. So Kurtz is this emaciated, skeletal, death-like figure carved out of ivory, uh, which is interesting because ivory, of course, is the source of the, the money that he's making 
but also stands out starkly white and ivory uh, surrounded by the, the black bronze body of the natives around him. Uh, so that's the first physical image that we get of Kurtz. And then another uh, character kind of emerges here, this native woman. And here again, like the, like the Russian, and like in some ways Kurtz himself, this is both r- realistic and very symbolic, but it's symbolic in, in a very strange way. Usually symbols help kind of clarify a meaning. They point to a particular meaning. This feels uh, symbolic or archetypal, but in a way that, is, again, has that fuzzy, hazy, ambiguous quality that so much of the, the storytelling in Heart of Darkness does. So look at how she's described. She walked with measured steps, draped in uh, striped and fringed cloths, treading the earth proudly with a slight jingle and flash of barbarous ornaments. She carried her head high. Her hair was done in the shape of a helmet. She had brass leggings to her knees, brass wire gauntlets to the elbow, a crimson spot on her tawny cheek, innumerable necklaces of glass beads on her neck, bizarre things, charms, gifts of witch-men that hung about her, glittering and trembled at every step. She must have had the value of several elephant tusks upon her. She was savage and superb, wild-eyed and magnificent. There was something ominous and stately in her deliberate progress. So this is a, a very impressive vision. Note, he, he notes particularly the, the wealth. All of the, the things that she's wearing display a, a great wealth, the value of several elephant tusks. Again, she's uh, magnificent, um, stately, uh, and, and it, we're never told exactly who it is, though she clearly has some relationship to Kurtz, and I think the, the implication is that this woman is Kurt's mistress. Uh, and she, she makes a gesture here at the bottom of 1998. Suddenly, she opened her bared arms and threw them up, rigid, above her head, as though in an uncontrollable desire to touch the sky. And at the same time, the swift shadows darted out of the earth, sweeping around on the river, gathering the steamer into a shadowy embrace. A formidable silence hung over the scene. So there's this uh, evocative gesture of holding out her arms in, in longing, trying to kind of reclaim Kurtz. And it, it's echoed by the, the, the shadows, the gathering um, uh, a shadowy embrace of the, the, the shadows on the river. Uh, so, again, she seems almost like an elemental figure here uh, who's trying to uh, keep Kurtz there with the, in, in the jungle with the natives. Now, we hear Kurtz speaking for the first time around line, or page 1999. He says, Save me? Save the ivory, you mean. Don't tell me. Save me. Why, I've had to save you. You are interrupting my plans now. Sick. Sick. Not so sick as you would like to believe. Never mind. I'll carry out my ideas yet. I will return. I'll show you what can be done. You with your little peddling notions. You are interfering with me. I will return. I... Um, 
so we get this rant, and he's he's calling them out. They said they're here to save him. He says, "No, you're just here because you want to save the ivory. Uh, you're interfering with my plans." Uh, so he he's certainly not a good company man. He is not the he's he's uh, the company likes him because he he's very profitable for them. But he doesn't like the restrictions of the the company. Uh, he wants to. He doesn't want them interfering with him. He says, I, "I'm not so sick as you think I am." Though of course he's literally dying, uh, so maybe he 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 is as sick as they think he is. Now after this rant, the manager comes out and and talks with with Marlowe about Kurtz and says that uh, Mr. Kurtz has done more harm than good to the company. Uh, and he says the district is closed to us for a time. Deplorable. So again, this is his method, and he says that he has unsound methods. Uh, now that's very interesting. That he, they're not saying that what he's doing is unsound, but the, his methods of doing it. Now they like the things that he's doing. He's getting the money. He's getting ivory in there, but he's just doing it the wrong way. They never question the fact that maybe the doing it in the first place. There's something unsound about that. But Marlowe speaks up for Kurtz. He says, nevertheless, I think Mr. Kurtz is a remarkable man, I said with emphasis. He he started, dropped on me a cold, heavy glance, said very quietly, he was, and turned his back on me. My hour of favor was over. I found myself lumped along with Kurtz as a partisan of methods for which the time was not ripe. I was unsound. Ah, but it was something to have at least a choice of nightmares. So, interestingly, Marlowe is in an ambivalent position about Kurtz. He doesn't reject him, at least not for the same reasons that the manager and the company do, uh, but he also... Uh, he doesn't. He sees that there's you know, again the, the heads on the fence post. It's not like he says he's great. He's not a, an acolyte. He's not a disciple of him the way that the Russian is. Uh, so he's kind of in an ambivalent position about him of of, of of how he's going to judge Kurtz ultimately. And the Russian tells them on uh, page two thousand that it was Kurtz who ordered the attack to be made on the steamer. He thought it would scare you away. That you would think you would give it up, thinking him dead. I could not stop him. So he sent the natives out to attack the the steamboat, and because he didn't want them to take him away, he knows they're going to do that. He doesn't want to. Remember, there was that story earlier where he came down the river like he was going to come back to the station, but then he turned back. He doesn't want to go back to civilization. He wants to be here where he is. Um, and again, the, the the Russian is just unambiguously impressed by him. You know, the the, man, the manager is unambiguously disgusted by him, or at least by his unsound methods. And the the Russian just loves him. He says, oh, "I'll never, never meet such a man again." You ought to have heard him recite poetry. His own too, it was. He told me poetry. Oh, he enlarged my mind. Uh, so, again, we get the, the very different interpretations of Kurtz. And they, they bring Kurtz, they've brought Kurtz into the, into the steamboat. They're going to take him back. And Marlowe goes in to, to see him. Again, he's been wanting to talk to him. He goes to the, the cabin and finds out that he's not there. And it's a shock to him, uh, top of two, 2001. 
It was the moral shock I received as if something altogether monstrous, intolerable to thought, and odious to the soul had been thrust upon me unexpectedly. Uh, so it's, it's quite a, quite a shock. Um, and he, but he's, he goes out by his own. He doesn't raise an alarm. He's going to go find Kurtz on his own. As he says, I did not betray Mr. Kurtz. It was ordered that I should never betray him. It was written, I should be loyal to the nightmare of my choice. Now, that's several times that Marlowe has talked about a choice of nightmares. Uh, and that seems to be how he thinks about things. There, There's the, the nightmare of Kurtz, and there's the nightmare of the company. Uh, neither, both of them are nightmarish. Both of them are bad. He kind of has to choose which, where his loyalty is going to go to. Um, so he finds him, and, and it turns out that Kurtz is literally crawling through the jungle to get back to the, the, the native village. And Marlowe is able to, to flank him and gets, gets around him and uh, finds him there and says the bottom of 2001, he rose unsteady, long, pale, indistinct, like a vapor exhaled by the earth, and swayed slightly, misty, and silent before me. So he's compared here, the images here, of a vapor, a mist. And so much of this, is, this story has been about the, the, the fog, the, those misty halos. And uh, Mar Kurtz is literally linked with the, with the mist, with the fog, as uh, rising from the earth. And Marlowe is trying to convince him to come back. He says, you will be lost, I said, utterly lost, you know, if you stay here. And Kurtz is saying, I had immense plans. I was on the threshold of great things. Um, but, you know, he finally convince, does convince him to come back. And look at the bottom of 2002, uh, Marlowe thinking about Kurtz and his achievements. Uh, I had to deal with a being to whom I could not appeal in the name of anything high or low. I had, even like the, uh, to invoke him, himself, his own exalted and incredible degradation. There was nothing either above or below him, and I knew it. He had kicked himself loose of the earth. Confound the man. He had kicked the very earth to pieces. He was alone, and I before him did not know whether I stood on the ground or floated in the air. So the idea is that it's, he's trying to appeal to a man who has no higher principles you can appeal to. He's a law unto himself. Uh, Marlowe is talking about it's, he's kind of lost all of the moral groundings that you have in civilization. Marlowe can't use any of those. Kurtz doesn't have any of those uh, standards, that something above him or below him uh, that he can appeal to. It's just to himself. And then Marlowe begins to talk about trying how difficult it is to explain this, as he often does in this story. I've been telling you what we, what we said, repeating the phrases we pronounced, but what's the good? They were common everyday words, the familiar vague sounds exchange, exchanged on every waking day of life. But what of that? They had behind them, to my mind, the terrific suggestiveness of words heard in dreams of phrases spoken in nightmares. 
So again, he's saying that, again, you can't understand this if you weren't there. I could tell you the words, but you wouldn't get the tone or the meaning or the, the symbolism or all of that that was going on. It, it was like, again, he uses that image of it being like in a dream with you know that there's this kind of deep meaning, but you can't articulate it to anyone else. Um, and it says that his soul was mad, being alone in the wilderness. It had looked within itself and by heavens. I tell you, it had gone mad. I had, for my sins, I suppose, to go through the ordeal of looking into it myself. Uh, so now he he sees that this kind of being free from all of those uh, civilizing restraints has driven this man mad, and he is looking at it. He says, I saw the inconceivable mystery of a soul that knew no restraint, no faith, no fear, yet struggling blindly with itself. So once again, the the events of the story here take on a, a, a deep and wide symbolic resonance uh, that, that Mar- Marlowe can barely find a way to communicate to us. Uh, this is not just a story of, of a realistic story about what happens to one person. It seems to suggest something much more profound about the human condition, how people become evil, um, all of that is is kind of wound up in the story of this one particular man. Uh, now they leave the next day, and when they do, he sees this native woman again, and she put out her hands, shouted something, and all the wild mob took up the shout in a roaring chorus of articulated, rapid, breathless utterance. Do you understand this? I asked. He kept on looking out past me with fiery, longing eyes, with a mingled expression of wistfulness and hate. He made no answer, but I saw a smile, a smile of indefinable meaning, appear on his colorless lips that a moment after twitched convulsively. Do I not? He said slowly, gasping as if the words had been torn from him by a supernatural power. Um, so, again, look at this. He's he's seeing this, and he looks at it with a mingled expression of wistfulness and hate. So does he... What is he... Is he wistful for going back? Does he hate the, the natives? It seems like it's both. Uh, again, it's a smile of indefinable meaning. You can't understand... Uh, fully what he's thinking. But at this point, Marlowe fires off the, the steam uh, steamer whistle to scare away the natives the way he did earlier when they attacked. And uh, also he does it because he doesn't want the pilgrims on the ship to start shooting them. And, but look, he says that only the barbarous and superb woman did not so much as flinch and stretched tragically her bare arms after us over the somber and glittering river. So there again is that gesture of stretching out her arms, that kind of longing for him to return. Um, so on the, the voyage back uh, up, you know, up the river is a lot faster because they're not going against the current. But he has these conversations with Kurtz uh, at the top of 2004. Kurtz discoursed. A voice, a voice, it rang deep to the very last. It, su- it survived his strength to uh, hide in the magnificent folds of eloquence 
the barren darkness of his heart. Here again, he suggested that before. That it's the kind of the eloquence of his use of language hides something that is, is dark and evil in him. Oh, he struggled, he struggled. The wastes of his weary brain were haunted by shadowy images now, images of wealth and fame revolving obsequiously around his unextinguishable gift of noble and lofty expression. Now, that's a way of, of summing up the, the kind of the colonialist hypocrisy. Uh, what it's for is wealth and fame, but it's hidden behind this gift of noble and lofty expression, these ideals of bringing civilization and all of that kind of stuff. And look what uh, Kurt says about it. You show them you have in you something that is really profitable, and then there will be no limits to the recognition of your ability. So here he's talking about, you know, what he did this with the company, making the money, and again, the idea of having no limits. And he says, and he says of course, you must take care of the motives, right motives, always. And he says, oh, oh, yeah, of course, it's always for the best possible motives that we're doing this. Now, the, um, uh, the, the boat breaks down, and, it, you know, it looks like they're not going to be able to get there before, get back to the camp before Kurtz dies. So he gives... Marlowe this packet of papers and a photograph and asks him to keep it. Um, and then we get the, the, the final moments with uh, Kurtz. Top of 2005. I am lying here in the dark waiting for death. And Marlowe tells us, I saw that ivory face, I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. So think about that. Somber pride. Well, you don't think about pride as being somber. Ruthless power. That's that's almost a cliche. And craven terror. Well, wait, power and terror? He's, he's afraid and, and, and terrified, but he's also ruthlessly powerful? Yes, he's all of that stuff. And it leads to an intense and hopeless despair. And so he cried in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror, the horror. I blew the candle out and left the cabin. And those are his last words, these very famous last words. What does he mean by that? Is he acknowledging the horror of the things that he has done? Is he saying that it is, it's a horror that he is not able to complete his work? Uh, it's, it's not clear. But Marlowe leaves him. He goes in uh, and says, uh, uh, suddenly the, the manager's boy put his insolent black head in the doorway and said in a tone of scathing contempt, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. Uh, so all of the pilgrims go in to see him. Says, there was a lamp in there, light, don't you know, and outside it was so beastly, beastly dark. Uh, again, those images of light and dark. You know, there's a light in the cabin, but everything outside is completely dark. So we get this moment of his, of his death, th these last words that are, are these an acknowledge of the heart of darkness, an acknowledgement of it? 
uh, or, 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 or is it regret? I mean, there are different ways that you can read that. Uh, to the very end, Kurtz remains deeply ambiguous. Now, I think that Marlowe very clearly interprets that uh, those final words, the horror, the horror, as a, a final recognition of the, the evil that he had done, that he kind of finally has a moment. He says, uh, this is near the bottom of 2005, droll thing life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from, from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late, a crop of unextinguishable regrets. So I think that Marlowe believes that this kind of self-knowledge is what happened with uh, Kurtz, though I think the story leaves that more ambiguous. It feels like Marlowe wants that to be true because it makes helps make sense of this. You know, if, if, if at the end he saw the horror of what he had done, well, that would mean maybe he wasn't so bad. Maybe there isn't a, just an unredeemable heart of darkness there. And he begins to uh, praise uh, Kurtz. He says, you know, he had something to say. He said it. Uh, he had summed up. He had judged the horror. He was a remarkable man. And after all, this was the expression of some sort of belief. It had candor. It had conviction. It had a vibrating note, a revolt in its whisper. It had the appalling face of a glimpsed truth, the strange commingling of desire and hate. Uh, again, the way he, the wonderful way that uh, Marlowe and Conrad describe these things, clarifying them but also making them more ambiguous. Uh, so here he's saying that, well, at least he had this, this strong belief, uh, a glimpse, an insight. You know, there's something remarkable and admirable about that, that he had stepped over the edge while I'd been permitted to draw back my hesitating foot. Uh, but it was a victory. This is why I have remained loyal to Kurtz to the last and even beyond. So as much as he's condemning Kurtz, he's also seeing him as somebody admirable, somebody who's worth being loyal to. Uh, he's in, so his attitude, again, is much more ambivalent and ambiguous than anybody else in the story. Uh, people either seem to love or hate Kurtz. They're either like the manager who want to kill him and think his methods are unsound, or they're acolytes like the Russian who worship him, uh, and and you know think he you know he nothing he does is wrong. Now in the last section of this story, we get a return to Europe. Uh, he says, "I found myself back in the sepulchral city. That's where he signed up for this, the sepulcher, the whited sepulcher, uh, which is kind of an image of hypocrisy." And his reaction to just normal people is very different. He says, they were intruders whose knowledge of life was to me an irritating pretense because I felt so sure they could not possibly know the things I knew. So he, he's, he's had this experience and given this insight about, the, about, uh, about darkness, about reality, and all these people around him don't see that at all. Uh, they don't understand this. Um, this is actually a common... Uh, experience with people who come back from from war, 
They feel alienated from people around them because they haven't had these traumatic experiences. They haven't seen life and death uh, the way that the, the returning soldier has. And something very similar is going on here with Marlowe. Um, and he's trying to, so he says, actually, I, I, you know, I, I didn't behave well, but I was also sick. I had a fever and I had, it was kind of nursing back to health. But he says, it was not my strength that wanted nursing. It was my imagination that wanted soothing. So he has this, remember, that bundle of papers that Kurtz had entrusted to him and has to decide what to do with it. And he meets three, you know, in quick succession, he meets several people here uh, who make a claim on him or talk to him about Kurtz. The first one is somebody from the company, a clean-shaven man with an official manner and wearing gold-rimmed spectacles. Um, and he refuses to give him Kurtz's personal papers. He said, I assured him that Mr. Kurtz's knowledge, however extensive, did not bear upon the problem of, of problems of commerce or administration. <laughs> so, you know, really, if you if you want to improve the economics and the administration, reading Kurtz is not going to help you. You know, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're missing the point. Now, the next person that he hears from is Kurtz's cousin, who tells him what a great musician Kurtz was. Now, this is completely new information. We've never heard any, any indication of this. And it points out that, it, again, it's another way in which Kurtz is impossible to pin down. He says, to this day, I'm unable to say what, Kurtz's prof what was Kurtz's profession, whether he ha ever had any, which was, the greatest, which was the greatest of his talents. I had taken him for a painter who wrote for the papers, or else a journalist who could paint. Even there, notice how ambivalent that is. You're not sure which one is more important. But now you're hearing this, and says it turns out he was just a universal genius. Um, so again, he's hard to pin down. Then a journalist comes and talks to him about Kurtz, and says that really, Kurtz should have gone into politics. He says, how that man could talk. He electrified large meetings. He had faith, don't you see? He had the faith. He could get himself to believe anything, anything. He would have been a splendid leader of an extreme party. What party, I asked. Any party, answered the other. He was an, a, an extremist. Um, so here, that, that kind of, it's interesting. It wouldn't have matter what you know, you know, liberal or conservative, it doesn't matter, far right-wing, far left-wing, just as long as it was extreme. Um, that's what Kurtz was at. Kurtz lives at the extremes. And again, that power of his language to be able to influence people. Now, the final person that he meets in the uh, who knew Kurtz is Kurtz's intended. He never tells us her name, but this is his fiancée. And he's going to go and deliver this packet of letters with the also the photograph of the girl. And he says that, you know, looking at it, this is the bottom of 2007, she seemed ready to listen without mental reservation, without suspicion, without a thought for herself. So when he goes and sees her, and this uh, begins on the, the bottom of 2008, uh, she is dressed all in black. She's still in mourning. And now it was traditional to wear black, be in mourning uh, for a, a, a dead spouse, husband or wife, for one year. But he notes it's been over a year and she's still in mourning. And it's for her, it's like he died just yesterday. And the room they're in, it's at dusk. It's at, you know, the, the, the sun is going down. Again, this is very symbolic. Um, 
and it, he keeps talking about how the light is getting dimmer. It's growing darker. The darkness deepened. He keeps talking about that as this interview between him and the intended goes on. And look at how they how they talk to each other and talk past each other. Uh, page 2009. Uh, you knew him well, she murmured, after a moment of mourning silence. Intimacy grows quickly out there, I said. I knew him as well as it is possible for one man to know another. Now look how, to how equivocal Marlowe's answers here. I knew him as well as it's possible for one man to know another. I think Marlowe believes it's not possible to, for any man to know anybody else very well. You admired him, she said. It was impossible to know him and not admire him, was it? He was a remarkable man, I said unsteadily. Again, that's an equivocal answer. Then before the appealing fixity of her gaze that seemed to watch for more words on my lips, I went on, It was impossible not to love him, she finished eagerly, silencing me into an appalled dumbness. Now, I don't think that's the way that Marlowe intended to finish that sentence. It was impossible not to, for her, it's love him. And she says, I knew him best, the, the intended. The room keeps growing darker. So, Clearly, she has this vision, this idea of who Kurtz was, and he is is reluctant to give her the, his full understanding of what Kurtz was, of what he had become by the end. Uh, and it, this all comes to a point because she wants to know what his last words were, what were Kurtz's last words. Uh, you know, it says he's nothing but a memory, but, you know, at least his words are still there. And she says in the middle of 2010, or it says, she put out her arms as if after a retreating figure, stretching them black and with clasped pale hands across the fading and narrow sheen of the window. Never see him? I saw him clearly enough then. I shall see this eloquent phantom as long as I live, and I shall see her, too, a tragic and familiar shade, resembling in this gesture another one, tragic also, and bedecked with powerless charms, stretching her bare brown arms over the glitter of the infernal stream, the stream of darkness. Now there he's explicitly linking the uh the the barbaric woman the beautiful barbaric native woman with the intended both stretching out their arms trying to get uh kurtz to come back to them but impotent unable to to bring him back um and uh, again she the intended wants to know what he said repeat his last words well he doesn't he says the last word he pronounced was your name. I heard a light sigh, and then my heart stood still, stopped dead short by an exalting and terrible cry, by the cry of inconceivable triumph and unspeakable pain. I knew it. I was sure. She knew. She was sure. Um, again, the kind of ambiguity of that. Uh, it's inconceivable triumph and unspeakable pain. Those mingled ideas there. Um, so at the end, he lies to her. He refuses to tell what he knows about the truth about Kurtz. And he does it because, as he says, it would have been too dark. It would have been too awful to tell this woman that. Um, 
But it suggested that maybe it's the fact that we're not willing to tell those truths that make these horrible things keep happening. Um, as long as we can keep pretending uh, that uh, these, this darkness uh, really isn't real, it can always come back. Uh, so that's the it in it ends very briefly back in the frame narrative there at the at the Thames River you know the sky seemed to lead as the heart of an immense darkness so to the end heart of darkness is full of this very ambivalent uh, feelings about things these conflicted feelings uh, he's talking about trying to grapple with something trying to explain something that you can't comprehend and the the world of heart of darkness is a world that is finally beyond your comprehension uh you you can see these pieces of it you get this fragments of it um and you can see that some people don't get it clearly but you're not ever sure that you do uh and that's uh, that is very much part of kind of 20th century modernist literature the the lack in in uh 19th century novels there's a clear feeling that everything is known or at least knowable, that the universe is not fundamentally incomprehensible. But in Heart of Darkness, it is. Uh, and a lot of the, the, the style that it's written in and the very sometimes convoluted language that Conrad is using and, and this kind of this impressionistic style that he has, uh, the use of the, the symbolism that is not at all clarifying. It gives it a sense of weightiness and importance, but doesn't help you understand the specifics any better. Uh, all of that is is conveying a sense of uh, of a modern world that human beings just aren't equipped to fully understand. Uh, and, and that, as much as anything, is is the if if there is a moral to Heart of Darkness, and I'm not sure there is, it's probably closer to that. Well, on that cheery note, uh, we will leave Heart of Darkness. Uh, for next time, I would like you to uh, read some poems by W.B. Yeats. Read The Lake Isle of Innisfree, When You Are Old, No Second Troy, The Fascination of What's Difficult, Easter, 1916, The Wild Swans at Cool, the Second Coming, and A Prayer for My Daughter. And I want you to think about uh, Yeats. Yeats is one of the great, maybe the maybe the great uh, modernist poet. And I want you to think in what ways he is similar to and different from the earlier periods of poetry that we've looked at. How is he like the Romantics? How is he like the uh, 19th century Victorian poets? Uh, and how is he different? What are, what's new about the, uh, the kind of poetry that he is writing? So we will delve into uh, W.B. Yeats next time. Thank you for your attention, and I'll talk to you about Yeats next time.